this morning as we, we look at this passage, we're, we're going to be talking out of the book of Habakkuk this morning. And it's a book that some of you are familiar with. Some of it, it's a smaller uh, Old Testament uh, book. It's uh, one of our, the prophets speaking. It comes after Micah and then Nahum and then Habakkuk. And there's this, this little book that is three chapters, and it's, it's kind of put right uh, in its, in, in, obviously it's God's word, it's in a perfect spot. But it's one that not a lot of us spend a ton of time talking about. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the first part of Habakkuk, and we're going to be talking about confidence of faith. And so most of us are familiar with the term crisis of faith. We hear that at different times, that people have gone through a crisis of faith. In fact, in the past year, we can probably think of one or more faithful followers of Christ that begin to share publicly that they're in a crisis of faith, and ultimately that crisis of faith leads to a rejection of their faith. On the other hand, there are those of us who have experienced a crisis of faith which actually produced in us a greater confidence of faith. And so this morning, we're going to be focusing on this idea of going through a crisis of faith that actually is a confidence of faith. Because the only through focusing on the character of God are we able to actually walk in our faith confidently regardless of our feelings or of our circumstances. Yesterday, we took time and actually shared this with the men out at, the men, at, out at man camp. And one of the things that we're looking at is how often do we actually consider the crisis of faith to be actually be an event that leads towards greater confidence. And so my hope this morning is that you see that Habakkuk walks momentarily through a crisis of faith, which is actually not a real crisis of faith, but rather it is a confidence of faith. It is for the purpose of building greater confidence in the God that he serves. So let's go ahead and stand together this morning. We're going to be in Habakkuk 1 starting in verses 1 through 11. And this is what it says. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men 
whose own might is their God. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for faith. A faith that is tested and grown and built that can only come from you. Father, I pray that you'd settle our own hearts this morning. That God, that you grant us focus on you this morning. That your spirit would speak powerfully to each of us this morning. Lord God, may you implant your word upon our heart. And may you move us toward you, Lord. Give us greater understanding of you. Encourage us this morning. Embolden us this morning. And in areas, Lord, where we need to be convict us, Father, may you convict us. May you challenge us. Lord God, may you move me out of the way and may it be you who brings forth your word and power. And may we, God, hear your word together and truly declare your praise and glory. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So the book of Habakkuk was written somewhere between 64 AD, or excuse me, 64 BC and 587 BC. The, the book was written actually prior to the fall of Judah. And Habakkuk is a book that asks some real questions about faith and focuses on our faith in God. Now, prior to Habakkuk writing, one of the things that had happened in Judah, the southern tribes of Israel, they had experienced a brief spiritual revival. And that revival had occurred under King Josiah, who reigned until 612 B.C. But the people of Israel, within a few short years, had actually fallen back into their apathy and their sin. They had actually gone backwards. And so they had experienced this revival, they had experienced the presence of God, and then, in a few short years, had gone back to living apart from God, living separate from Him, choosing to walk in their own way, choosing to walk in obedience not to the Lord, but into their own flesh. And so this is where Habakkuk kind of picks up. Now, in verse 1, it says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. It's the way verse 1 begins. Now, the word oracle in Hebrew is the word masa. Okay? And the word masa literally means burden. That's what it means. So he's not here to actually just simply tell a story. This is not the, the story here of, of that Habakkuk the prophet saw. What he's actually saying is, and probably better, maybe even simpler to translate, is the burden which Habakkuk the prophet saw. So what he's sharing is the burden, the burden of his heart, the thing that's on his heart. You see, Habakkuk's telling more than just a story. He's actually sharing his burden. His burden for a people that are walking in rebellion to God. But that's just part of it. 
He wants to see God work and move. And so notice what he says. He, he actually comes in and in verse 2 he says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? What we're going to see in this passage is actually Habakkuk talking to God directly, sharing with him even his frustration. In fact, sharing frustration in such a way and wondering why God is not responding. See, Habakkuk is longing to experience God's movement in his life and in the lives of those around him. And he desperately wants to live within God's will and experience his blessing both as an individual and as a nation. However, the situation's not getting better, it's actually getting worse. In fact, Jeremiah had already prophesied to this in Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, when he says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So, Habakkuk wants to see the people's life changed and God's judgment avoided. That seems like a pretty noble thing. And yet, after consistently seeking God, no change occurs. You see, it's at this point that Habakkuk's faith is being tested. John MacArthur puts it this way, he says, Many of us find coming into our lives problems that we cannot understand, sorrows that we cannot cope with, various temptations that tend to make us doubt God and wonder if we're really saved, wonder if God really cares at all, wonder if the faith that we hold so strongly could really have a failing or a weak link to it. Ever been there? Ever been at that place where you feel as if, or begin to doubt as if God's not near, and if what he says in his word is actually true? You see, Habakkuk's life reveals two areas which can cause us to question the hope of our faith in God's plan for our lives as we seek the Lord. And there's two specific areas, and the reality is, is that this lack of hope can actually lead to a loss of confidence in Christ. It can lead to fear and anxiety and doubt, and ultimately to a crisis of faith. So what's the first area that we see here? Well, verse 2 says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? This is not a man who is standing by idly. He's crying to the Lord and he says, and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. See, when we feel God is not answering our prayer, that's an area that can often cause us to question the hope of our faith. And so that first part of it is when we feel that God's not answering our prayer, guess what? That can cause us to question See, Habakkuk is crying out to God, and yet in the midst of that, he's not experiencing the answer that he thinks should occur. I mean, listen to what he says. 
O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? What he's saying is, hey, I'm giving you your reason as to why you ought to be doing what you ought to be doing. He's trying to point out and saying, God, my, my request is noble here. It's righteous. I mean, you're a God who doesn't want violence. You're a God who, who wants a unity and peace. He's trying to give him the reason, and yet, the answer is still quiet. In fact, it's not even just quiet, but the problem is persisting. Notice the last part of verse 2 here that we just spoke about when he speaks of this violence. Habakkuk, in essence, is really saying, look, God, I'm giving you the righteous reason, so I expect an appropriate answer. And God does not answer as he expects. See, we've all experienced times when we've prayed and wondered if God was present for some, it might be for salvation of a family member or a friend. It might be direction regarding employment or for a future or current spouse. It might be for the removal of a specific sin that seems to, to always crop up in your life that you wrestle with every day or for the health of a loved one. One pastor gives us a good example that this is often the way that we can end up praying, God, I need help. God, you said you will help. God, you said you will answer prayers. I pray for help and you don't help. How come? I know you're good because you say you are and I know you hear because you say you hear and I know you can act because you've acted in the past, but how come when I pray nothing happens? Crying out, God. There's injustice and sin and folly and carnage and mayhem and death and I'm asking for you to involve yourself and you don't. How come? Some may experience that in marriage. Some may experience that with children. Some may experience that in friendships or in life circumstances. Some may experience that in health. When we believe that God ought to be answering prayer in a specific way and he's not, and it seems to be that it's his heart that he would answer it in that way. It can lead to doubt. And so Habakkuk here is wondering what in the world's going on. About 10 to 15 years ago, there was a church here in Sonoma County. The pastor was a friend of mine and got to know him through his children who came to youth ministry when I was still leading youth ministry in Windsor and His wife contracted cancer. The church prayed for her for three years, fervently, that she would be healed. And after three years of prayer, in fervent prayer, she still ended up passing away of cancer. And when she did, the church was devastated. And for many, they expected God to bring about physical healing, that when he didn't, their faith was tremendously shaken. And that church spiraled and never recovered. And within two years, the door to those church was closed. 
You see, they had expected God to work because it seemed to be his heart. And yet, they had expected God to work in the way they wanted it to work. The second area that can cause us to question, the first being that when we aren't seeing prayer answered, is that when we see disobedience to God prospering over obedience. When we see disobedience to God prospering over obedience. In verse 3 and 4, Habakkuk says, Why do you make me see iniquity or sin, and why do you idly look at wrong? Like, God, you see what they're doing. You see the corruption of the world. Why do these guys prosper? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Wow. Habakkuk's looking at God saying, listen, it doesn't seem like the reward is for the righteous. It seems like you're looking at sin and you're letting wickedness prevail. You see, Israel as a people and a nation are walking in disobedience. And this disobedience has led to war and violence and turmoil and disunity, manipulation of the law that creates injustice and a lack of righteousness, which was ultimately, ultimately perverting justice. Now, think about that for a moment. It sounds a lot like our, war, our world today. War and violence, turmoil and disunity, manipulation of the, of the law, which sets those that are guilty free, and then a lack of righteousness, that the standard for righteousness or for that which is right is corrupt. And so that which is knowingly wrong is accepted as right. We think about that even in context of things like abortion. Yesterday, I was having a conversation with somebody, and they were sharing, he said, over the course of the last several years, I believe that with 3D and 4D imaging for infants in the womb, that abortion that would come to an end as people saw the life that resided in a woman's womb. And the person said, but it's changed. When it's finally been confronted, people still now call it and say, it's a baby, but it's okay to take its life. And so you have things that are happening across our country where states have already approved the afterbirth abortion, where a child is born alive and allowed to be killed. You know why? Because the argument was never about misunderstanding. The argument always was about convenience, and people always knew it was life because they could protect the life they wanted but so easily take the one they didn't. God's grace is still for those who have even participated in abortion, and that's the beauty of God's grace. 
But it's easy to see how we are blinded and how that perversion of, of understanding and making that which is not right, right, permeates our culture. Think about our culture with this war and violence and disunity and injustice and immorality. As Christians, we are to have hope in the midst of a culture which is in despair. Our hope is not in the way the culture looks, but our hope is in God. And so Habakkuk is actually trying to reconcile God's character with his current environment. But the problem is Habakkuk's focus is on the sin and the results of the sin, not on God. He's looking here rather than here. And so God responds to Habakkuk's questions. He doesn't look at Habakkuk and say, how dare you question me? If I could understand one thing as a kid, it would be this. God does not recoil when you ask him questions, nor is he offended when you challenge him. And what do I mean by that? It's okay to look at God and go, I don't get this. Help me understand. God's big enough to handle that. You serve a God that is big enough to handle those questions. You serve a God that is big enough for you to be completely and utterly honest with. We need to see that God does not leave Habakkuk in a lurch. He doesn't say, that's tough beans. You're going to have to figure out and get back to it later. You're on your own. No. Look at what Habakkuk does. He answers, excuse me, God answers Habakkuk. And so he answers Habakkuk, though, differently than Habakkuk is expecting. See, through God's answer, what we actually will see is what is necessary to confidently walk in our faith when God seems distance or when unrighteousness tends to prevail. And so G. Quimble Morgan points out this. He says, men of faith are always the men that have to confront problems. Block God out and your problems are ended. If there is no God in heaven, then we have no problem about sin and suffering. No problem about the slum and the tenement house and the oppression of the poor and all the prosperity of the rich and sinful. But the moment you admit the existence of an all-powerful governing God, you are face to face with your problems. It is the man of faith who, having the problem, always finds its solution, not always in an immediate explanation of the problem confronted, but in the new confidence that God can make no mistake. He goes on, knowledge of God creates problems. Fuller knowledge of God answers them every one. That seems to me to be the great lesson. And so confidence of faith is rooted actually in the nature of God, not in the sinful result of the world. 
And for some of us, that may seem like, well, yeah. But we get lost in it. How many times do we hear as Christians, ah, this world's hopeless? Yeah, it is. The world's the world. It's apart from God. Of course it's hopeless. We're just stating what is naturally a fact. And so when we see that, that should actually encourage us. Well, God, I've been praying, and you're just not doing it my way. Right. Because I've told you in my book, I've told you in my word, that my ways are not your ways. But I've made you some promises. And in those promises, I've told you who I am. I've made myself known. And so the first thing that God does is he reminds him, Habakkuk, of his own nature. And so the first thing that we see here is that God is personal and knowable. He's personal and knowable. He communicates by showing and telling us what he's doing. Verse 5 says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. You see, God's telling Habakkuk the answer to his questions. And it only occurs after God had previously been showing him what he's doing. So here's what happens. He says, listen, what I've told you in my word is actually going to be affirmed by what you see. But be patient. Be patient. Be reminded. Be reminded that my word, what I have told you, actually is affirmed if you will be watchful, if you will look, because I'm a God who is personal, who has made myself known to you. Verse 5 continues, For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. See, in reality, some of the ways in which God's currently moving, we really wouldn't believe if we were simply told. Uh, Let me give you an example. In October of 2017, this area was ravaged by a fire. That fire did tremendous destruction. Not one person probably looked at that event and said, oh, that's good. Yep, this this is for God's kingdom. But let me tell you about something. There was tremendous devastation in that fire. There was tremendous loss that was real. Some of you may have experienced that own devastation or been helping with others who were also devastated. But God was still working that out and taking and applying exactly what was done for his purposes. Now what most of us will probably never know is that God used the fires to position the church in this community in a way that it could have never occurred on its own. There are 13 schools in the city of Santa Rosa now that have direct relationships with churches and pastors. Santa Rosa City Schools posted church events on their website. One of the elementary schools this summer sent VBS flyers out to all the parents as the parents were going on summer vacation in the homeschool packets. 
and then asked if the church would do their VBS on-site at the school so the school kids could attend. Principal doesn't know Jesus. The truth is this. The influence the church has been able to have in this community as a result of that. God, that day in 2017, if God had said, guess what I'm doing, we would have been like, I, I, don't, I don't see it. But when we look at his word in Romans 8.28, where he says he's actually working out things for good, for those that, that love him, we can take confidence knowing that his word is being affirmed. We can rejoice over the fact that his word is actually being affirmed. And so he's saying, listen, look around you. Because actually what's happening around you is actually affirming my scripture. It's actually showing you that I'm a God who desires to be known. 1 Corinthians 2, 12-13 tells us that it's actually through the Holy Spirit that we're granted understanding. So in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13, it says, Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. God has given you the Holy Spirit so that he might be known and he, you might be known and that you would sense the nearness of him. See, in marriage, in marriage, you have the closest intimacy that you could have with another human being. A husband and wife, God has intended to be the closest intimate union between two humans. But there is one relationship that has even greater intimacy and greater personalness. And it is the Holy Spirit living inside of the believer. It is the fact that you have the living God. If you have repented and believed on Jesus, he has granted you his spirit, and his spirit lives within you. And you are fully known by God in a way that you will never be fully known by another person. God is that personal that he placed his spirit within you. That's an awesome thing. And so we need to remember that when we're asking questions of, God, why are you not answering my prayer? Or God, it seems like the world has this injustice. It's just raining and people seem to be prospering. And remember that God is a personal and, and knowable God. And because he's personal and knowable, James 1, 5 through 8 instructs us to do this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. See, there are times when we're not going to understand things. I remember 
four years ago, lying in a hospital bed as I was kind of wrapping up these different surgeries. And I remember it was that night before heading in for the second open heart surgery. And those two days before that second surgery seemed to be quiet and even distant. And I remember the passage that the Lord had given me in those moments was just simply be still and know that I'm God. And I remember honestly being frustrated. And my frustration with what was, God, I need more than that. Like, I need more that you want me to lean on in this moment. Like, I understand, like, that, that the scripture that's kept overwhelming was be still and know that I'm God. And I, I will tell you that I tried to fight that. Like, God, there's something else. Let me go to some hopeful verses. Like, um, uh, I don't know, the leper was healed. Or, um, and I was, I was just clinging, like grabbing. And I laid there and I was like, Lord, all I want, just give me a glimmer of hope for some understanding. How much longer will this be endured? And lying there in the silence of that room, the Lord brought me back to a time in August and September of 2014, five months earlier of that January, so it was actually almost a year, exactly a year, in which I had gone before the Lord and simply begged him, God, I know that I, I know that I'm supposed to relish in your glory, but I just don't feel like I see it enough. And I don't feel like I understand it enough. Teach me. And there were all kinds of reasons that I believe God allowed me to experience those seasons in my life. But I can tell you, in that moment, the Lord brought me right back to my prayer and said, actually, I was answering your prayer. It just looked a lot differently than you thought. And the truth is, I would have never seen his beauty and glory without having walked through that. But God is a personal and knowing God. And so when you struggle to understand what's going on and why things are happening the way, ask God for wisdom. It doesn't mean he's going to write it in the sky. But it does mean that he has promised to give you enough to understand so that you might walk in hope. In the hope of your faith. The second aspect of God's nature is that God is sovereign. And he's working out his plan in our lives, even when we don't understand. God's sovereign. And he's working out his plan in our lives, even when we don't understand. You see, this is the essence of God's sovereignty. He's in control, even when we don't understand what he's doing, or even agree with his ways. Look what he says in verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of earth to seize dwellings, not their own. He goes on and he says in verse 7, seven through 10, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. See, God hates sin, but God will often use the wicked to judge the wicked. And it's important that we understand that. 
that God does hate sin, but he will often use the wicked to bring judgment against those who have rebelled against him and rejected his lordship in their lives. See, God is working things out even when we don't understand. This is not our home. That's what he says. We serve a king who has a heavenly home. But more than that, we serve a king who will reign and restore both a new heaven and a new earth. God's ways are different. See, it starts with us knowing who he is and that he is knowable. And it moves on to the fact that he's sovereign. And so we serve this God who is both personal and knowable, and he's also sovereign and ruler over all. Now, I don't know how many of you guys in here have met President Trump or President Obama or President Bush or, or President Clinton. Not one of us. The ruler of the Western world, in essence, most powerful man, in essence. Most of us would say they're not personal. We don't know them. But you serve the creator over all who knows you in full and who has allowed him to know you completely and for you to know him. This is different than any other thing that we have in this life and in this world. And so when God works, our faith has to be in who he is. That he's sovereign. He's working it out. And what we see is not really necessarily the end game, but rather what we see is how he's working out his will. And so the third thing is, is that he's just. God's just. He deals righteously with us. Because God is just, he deals righteously with us. Notice what it says, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. See, God will hold unrepentant sinners accountable. In fact, Psalm 1, 5 through 6 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Yep. We have to remember that. That means that Guess what? When God says that vengeance is his, it means it's his. That means that our response is not to be vengeful back. That means that we don't have to worry about the things that are happening except to be reflecting and living out the presence of his glory. The condition and state of our nation and the condition and state of our world does not change the mission that God has given his church. It doesn't. What happens in the world does not change the way that we are called to live. And it's important we grab that. Because when our eyes are here, when it's on this here, our life here, and off of the nature of God, we will begin to doubt. Now Habakkuk is actually telling us about what's going to happen even in the New Testament. How? Well, this is exactly the story of Peter walking on water, isn't it? That when Jesus calls Peter to come out of the boat and Peter steps out of, of the boat and begins walking but yet sees the waves, takes his eyes off of Jesus and begins to sink, 
It's the same. He doubted the ability of God, of Jesus, to keep him, to keep his promise, come forth to me. He looked at the wave and said, there's no possible way I can come forth to you. And he sunk. See, Habakkuk is dealing with the same thing. God's telling Habakkuk, stop taking your eyes and putting them on the things of this world. But focus on me and who I am. And you will not sink. Because if you understand who I am, you will be strengthened knowing that I will work this out. That I am doing a work. And that I will deal with you righteously and justly. Now notice at the end of verse 11 it says, Whose might is their God. Well, Habakkuk 2.4 comes along and says, listen, guess what? God will deal with the prideful, those that have put their strength in themselves and in their own understanding. And he says this in 2.4, but he adds a hopeful caveat. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. You see, God's injustice, his, in God's justice, he also grants salvation to those who surrender their lives to him. And so James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, God is a God who is just and he will deal justly towards those who are walking in unrighteousness apart from Christ. He will deal with that and his wrath and his judgment will rule over them. And yet, for those who walk in righteousness, his blessing will prevail. See, God deals with his people justly and righteously. And that means that when I don't understand and when I look out and I see injustice, that means that God will deal with that injustice, but I can be confident that he will deal with me rightly. That's why we need to be submitted to the Lord. And it's why our focus needs to be set in gazing upon him, not the circumstances of the world. You see, experiencing grace does not mean that we're free from the, early con the earthly consequence of our sin, but it does mean that we are free from the eternal judgment of our sin. And so we're still gonna have to deal with consequences and we're gonna have to still live within this life But our faith is not rooted in the experience. It's rooted in the nature of God. And so I want to encourage you that when those questions arise, when you are praying for something that seems righteous and seems to be the heart of God and it's not occurring, stay the course. And I want to encourage you as well to know, don't put your focus on what the result is. Put your focus on the one who brings the result, whose nature is personable and knowable, who's sovereign over all, and who is just and righteous. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for being able to look at this text. And I pray, God, that our crises of faith would actually be opportunities for confidence of faith. 
that in us you might produce a confidence that comes as our faith is tested, as we look at the things within the world that we don't understand, but that you reveal in us a greater understanding of who you are. May our hope not be tied to the things of this world, but God, may our hope be fully embraced, initiated, and dwelling in who you are. And we ask this in your name. Amen.